face the Lord for today. It's been a, a good day and a good week. How are you? How's your week? You good? Yeah. So we're continuing our series on the series we call Refocus. Last Sunday, we talked about distractions. And speaking of distractions, there are many distractions uh, all throughout the week. Uh, the war in Ukraine, the soaring gas prices, the, the spring break. Uh, it's becoming a distraction in the house with us. Uh, there are so many distractions. But today, I want to refocus your attention. Uh, distraction is some kind of thing that we have to put aside so that we can move on. Today, I want to talk about uh, desperation. Distraction is the reason why we cannot refocus. Desperation is what drives us to refocus. Are you with me? Yeah. All right. Let's talk about desperation. Uh, say, for example, you have a friend, and you haven't been talking with your friend for about 10, 15 years. You had a fallout. But then there's, there comes a time when you needed money, and you know that this friend is the only friend who can give you that money. It's called desperation. Uh, to those who are married, uh, there are times when you know, you argue with your wife or your husband, and then you, you're silent, you're quiet in the house, but then there comes a time when you needed something and you know that your spouse knows where it is, so you have to break the protocol and break the silence because of desperation. Desperation is when you hit rock bottom, when you're, you're against the wall, when you have no other choice but that unconventional one, you take it because of desperation. So today I wanna talk to you about desperation. Our uh, chapter today, Joshua chapter 9, talks about this flow. Crisis is the source of desperation. Crisis leads to desperation. Desperation leads us to, making, uh, to breaking protocol. And breaking, breaking protocol sometimes, in special cases, will blur the line between blessing and curse. Let me say that again so it's clear. Crisis leads to desperation. Desperation can... Uh, blurred the line between blessing and curse. Joshua chapter 9 talks about the story of desperation. Let's open to Joshua chapter 9. Let's start reading from verses 1 and 2. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, or iPads or iPhones, whatever that is that you have, or you can read with me through the screen. Uh, Joshua chapter 9. I'm going to start with verses 1 and 2. Are you ready? Amen. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Dad. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Let's read together. As soon as the kings who were beyond Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. This is very interesting because this passage talks about their conquest, the continuing conquest of the land. Let me just put a context on this. For those of you who are not familiar with the story, so they were now in the promised land, but there are people in the land and they will have to drive out the inhabitants in the land. God commanded them to drive out the inhabitants of the land because of certain things that are not acceptable to God. Incest, child sacrifice, uh, and all the wicked things about idolatry. 
So God wants to drive these people out from the land. The people that I just mentioned, the Hivites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, all these people must be read out from the land. And the Israelites must live out what reflects the holiness of God. And so Joshua was the leader, and from Joshua chapter 5 up to Joshua chapter 8, they just annihilated the city of Jericho and the city of Ai. We know that from the previous sermon. So all these kings who are situated in the hill country, uh, they thought that themselves that they can really overcome the Israelites by banding together. So they said, let's make an alliance. Let's fight against the Israelites. If we are one, then probably we can, we can defeat the enemy. But you know, this one group from the Hivites called the Gibeonites, the Gibeonites were smarter. So this is what they did. Verses 3 up to verse 5, this is what it says. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys, wineskins, worn-out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. There are many worn-outs here. What they practically did is that they tried to make appear that they are from the faraway land so that they, make, they can make alliance with Israel. So these people, if, if you just see the map, these people are just 20 miles away from Jericho and Ai, 20 miles also from where the people of Israel were at Gilgal. Let me put this, this in perspective. 20 miles is from Cinemark up to the uh, Fort Lauderdale Airport. That's 20 miles. For some, it's a three-day walk. Maybe it's a two-day walk. Who knows? But this is how near they are. And yet these people try to appear in front of Israel with worn out everything, clothes, slippers. They want to make alliance with Israel. They know that surrender is not an option because the people of Israel will not accept their surrender. So they came appearing as if they came from a faraway place so that they can make alliance with Israel. And what's interesting is that the Bible describes it as cunning. Look at it again, uh, verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and, A and Ai, they on their part acted with cunning. Does your Bible say the same thing? Cunning, cunning, or trickery. Other translations say prudence. But this is something that is very unconventional, something that, that you know you're hiding something, cunning. First thing probably you have heard about this word is in the Garden of Gethsemane. The serpent is cunning. And then goes stories after stories about people who were also tricking other people, cunningly deceiving other people, cunning. So the Gibeonites tried a cunning act because they cannot just simply surrender. What's interesting here is that it worked. Their cunning worked. See, the Israelites inspected try their best to inspect worn out clothes, worn out shoes, worn out sandals, worn out wineskins, even the bread is worn out. But they forgot something. Verse 14, if you may. This is what it says. So the men took some of their provisions, but, this is a big but, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. It, the cunning worked because the people of Israel deliberately did not ask the counsel of the Lord. So I'm thinking at this point, how many of us have made major decisions in life and made mistakes 
because we did not deliberately ask the counsel of God. Do not show any hand. <laughs> We're all part of this. We make mistakes. We made mistakes in the past because we did not deliberately ask the counsel from God. Now, here's the thing. What's interesting here is that this crisis that the Gibeonites are experiencing, they tried to make do of this one. And in this crisis, they said, there's no other way but to break the protocol, but to deceive the Israelites, or else if we surrender, they will just simply kill us. So they broke the protocol, and they tried to deceive the people of Israel. Listen to their confession in verse 24. We'll jump to verse 24. This is what it says. They answered Joshua. Now Joshua is confronting the Gibeonites. Joshua has already, in verse 24, uh, found out that they were from a neighboring country. And so Joshua now is confronting the, the Gibeonites. Verse 24, they answered Joshua, because it was told to you, uh, sorry, because it was told to your servants first a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. What, what the Gibeonites are saying is that we have heard what God did. We have heard what God said. In fact, we have heard all the way from Moses. Moses said for certainty that you people will be coming to the land of Canaan. Now, we're talking about 40 years. See, Moses was 40 years before. When Moses died, it was Joshua who picked up the mantle of leadership. And yet, even then, when they crossed the Red Sea, the people of Canaan already heard what happened. God was able to, to split the Red Sea. Although they were, they were living in the wilderness for 40 years, the land of Canaan, the people of Canaan already heard that these people are protected by God in the time of Moses. And for certainty, they said, for certainty, Moses said, and it will happen. And that's why they are greatly afraid. Okay, so they said, the last phrase is, uh, because of you did this thing. What is did this thing? What did this thing is verse 3. You go back to verse 3. This is what it says again. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, that is the did this thing. Now what they're saying is, when Joshua confronted the people of Gib Gibeon, they're saying, when we heard what you did to Jericho and to Ai, we greatly feared. Now, Let's uh, pause for a while and, and think this through. What, what, what are they saying, really? When they heard that, that God um, redeemed the people of Israel and they crossed the Red Sea, it's nothing to them. It, they're very far away. Canaan was far away from them. So when they heard that God was protecting them for 40 years, that's nothing to them because they're still far away. But when they heard that they crossed the Jordan River, they were alarmed. But when they heard that Israel attacked Jericho and Israel attacked Ai, then they feared greatly. See, here's the thing. Threats become real when they come close to home. Threats become real when they come close to home. See, we're not afraid that Putin is going to make war against the United States because the war is in Ukraine. So it's not affecting us. But see, every time you go to the gas station to fill your tanks, you're affected, correct? Correct? Sometimes the threats become real when they get close to home. See, the Americans were not 
really worried about the terrorists in the Middle East until 9-1-1 when the hit planes hit the Twin Tower. We know it's real. We know it's, it's here. See, the Gibeonites were not afraid until they heard that the walls of Jericho came crumbling down. See, the walls of Jericho were doubled walls. It's, it's a fortress. It's something that will not really just crumble down. But when they heard that because the Israelites encircled the walls of Jericho for seven days, seven times, and it just simply fell, they were afraid. But not only that, when they heard of what happened to Ai, when they heard that the king was captured, the king was killed, and he was hanged on a tree, and he was buried in front of the city, and they burned the city of Ai and made it ruins, they were so afraid. See, here's the thing. Again, threats become real when they come close to home. And this crisis is brewing in them. They know it's not just a crisis. It's something that's very close to home. It's real crisis after all. And this crisis has brought them to desperation. So crisis led to desperation. Desperation is now going to lead them to break the protocol. And the protocol is not surrender. Supposedly, that's the protocol. But they cunningly deceived the Israelites thinking that they are from a very far away place. They made an alliance with Israel. Let's talk about breaking protocol. When crisis leads to, the, to desperation, and desperation leads to breaking the protocol, sometimes breaking the protocol blurs the line between blessing and curse. Let me show you what it means. Chapter 9, verse 23. It says, Now therefore... Joshua, confronting the Gibeonites, he said, Now therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, woodcutters, and drawers of water for the house of my God. This is a very interesting verse. When I was trying to study that, I could not, I could not believe what my eyes is looking at. Because although Joshua was cursing the Gibeonites, Joshua was also blessing the Gibeonites. Why do they say that? Do you realize if not millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people dream of going to Jerusalem simply to be able to touch the walls of Jerusalem? I mean, I haven't been to Jerusalem. Have anyone been to Jerusalem? See? We all want to go there because we want to be close to where, you know, Jesus was. It, was, it is our dream. Some of, some of the people, it's their dream. Um, I, I'm jealous of Pastor Rick Dugiles because he, uh, Pastor Rick and his wife's now in Jerusalem uh, doing a tour. It's probably one of the things that we should do before, you know, put in the bucket list. Something to do. You know, instead of going to the Caribbean, maybe save some and maybe go to Jerusalem and see where Jesus walked, you know, see the, the well, see where Jerusalem, and, and really touch the wall. See, to make our faith really come alive. These, these people have, have been relegated to the task of wood choppers and drawers of water. And, and you can look at this as a curse, but I look at this as a blessing. See, there are 12 tribes in Israel. Only the Levites were tasked to be the ones serving God in the temple, in the tabernacle. They were the ones supposed to be drawing waters and chopping woods. But now it will be for the Gibeonites. And you can look at this as a curse, but I look at this as a blessing. If there's anything that I can do, if I can compete for a position, I will compete for this position. Because to me, this is not a curse. This is a blessing. 
to be with God, to be in the house of God, to be working for the house of God is to me a blessing. Even David would say that all my life, my only desire is to be with God, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord forever. See, this is not just a curse. This is a blessing. Because of this audacity to break the protocol, the Gibeonites were given the chance to blur the line between the blessing and the curse. See, this is a recurring theme. This is not just an isolated story. This is a recurring theme. There's a, a story way back to Genesis chapter 27. There are two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Uh, they were actually twins. They, they came out of the womb split second. So Esau came first and then Jacob. But because of the culture at that time, the blessing of the firstborn will be given to, uh, to Esau. And Jacob knew about it. But the thing what the Bible is saying is that when the Bible talks about Esau and Jacob, it will appear that Esau did not appreciate the firstborn blessing. Esau does not appreciate and does not understand what it means to have the blessing of being a firstborn. But Jacob wanted it. Jacob craved for it. He wanted to have the double portion of blessing. And so he tried his best to look for every opportunity to get that blessing. So one day, Esau was hunting. He came back very tired and hungry, and Jacob was cooking stew. He was cooking Papa Ethan at that time. Right. And so Esau came and said, can I have some? I'm so hungry. I'm about to die if I don't eat. <laughs> so Jacob said, will you exchange this for your birthright? A bowl of soup for your birthright. And Esau, if, if you try to be imaginative about their conversation, as if Esau is saying, what, what good is it if I die? What good is the firstborn right if I die? So yes, give me the, so the bowl of soup and your, yours is the... Uh, birthright. But it doesn't end there. Jacob did not get the birthright until his father decided one day he's going to give the blessing. So his father Isaac said one day he was already blind, he was old, he was huge, and he said, Esau, you're my firstborn son, I want to give you the blessing, but you're going to have to give me something to eat, then I will give you my blessing. And so Esau came went away hunting Jacob stepped in the door, clothed with the clothes of Esau, smells like Esau, you know, appearing like Esau, pretending like Esau, but he cannot change his voice. And he has this delicious food. And he said, Father, eat now so you can give me your blessing. Isaac was confused in the first place because the voice is Jacob's, but the smell and the texture of his clothes and his arms are Esau's. So he ate the food, he smelled Jacob, and he said, really, you're my firstborn son. So he gave out his blessings to Jacob. See, this is the same trick that the Gibeonites did. They appeared like worn-out clothes, worn-out sacks, worn-out sandals, and made an alliance with Israel. Jacob did the same to Isaac, his father. He did not only trick his brother Esau, he also tricked his father Isaac and made it appear like he was Esau. Out of desperation, out of this crisis, he was so desperate. And out of this desperation, he tried to break the protocol of blessing. And when he tried to break the protocol of blessing, he blurred the line between blessing and a curse. Sure, he got the blessing, but after that, he was exiled. 
his brother Esau found out and, and really promised to kill him. So he went away to the land of his mother. What happened here with Jacob? See, God honored the fate of Jacob after that. Of course, God does not approve what he did, his cunning, his deceive, his deception, his trickery. But God saw the fate of Jacob that he honored it. He honored the action of Jacob. There's a, a story also in the New Testament that talks about the same repetition of story. There's a story about this woman who also had a crisis, and this crisis led her to a desperation, and her desperation led her to breaking the protocol of purity, and then this, this act of blur, uh, breaking the a protocol of purity led to the blurring of the blessing and the curse. We, we find that in Mark chapter 5, verses 25 to 26. This is called the, the woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years. You know probably this story and you've heard this story. But let me just read for you verse 25 and 26. It says, And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Now, what's interesting about this woman is that she is bleeding for 12 years. Uh, I'm no physician, but when I research on this, uh, commentaries would say that she is suffering from endometriosis. I'm not sure if you heard about this, but there's uh, a tissue outside the uterus that's causing the blood to flow every day. Some say that it's also probably a cervical cancer that's causing the blood to flow. Now imagine this, she is leaking blood every day for 12 years. And if you do this, results would be anemia, uh, abdominal pain, depression, and others. Uh, probably the worst is dizziness. You're dizzy every day. It's, it's really hard to work every day because you're leaking blood. And we're trying to ascertain how much blood is she leaking every day. Uh, commentators would say that she's leaking about 100 ml. That's half cup of the short Starbucks coffee. That much, every day. And so if you do that, you, you will probably develop really anemia. And if you develop anemia, you will have a hard time concentrating. It's very hard to concentrate. That's another distraction, I guess. Now what this means is that this woman, this woman is dying. He's, she's dying by the minute. What I'm worried is not her physical condition at this point. What I'm worried is her spiritual condition. Let me show you something that's very interesting. In Leviticus chapter 15, verses 19, there's something that is, that is about her, her condition, about leaking blood. Leviticus chapter 15, verse 19. This is what it says. When a woman has a discharge, and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. Are, are you with me? So physically, yes, she is devastated. She, is, she has anemia, abdominal pain, depression, all sorts. But spiritually, she's unclean. And you know what that means if she's unclean? 
That means if she is single at this point, she, is never, she will never have a chance to get married. Because if she keeps on bleeding, she will not get married. She will not be able to have children also. Spiritually speaking, if she is unclean, that's, that means she cannot touch anyone. She cannot be touched by anyone as well. She must live outside her home. In fact, like lepers, she must live outside the city. She cannot stay inside the house. She must live outside the city and be an outcast. That's her spiritual condition. I'm thinking, you know, this woman has been doing that. She's been leaking blood for 12 years. That means for 12 long years, she is unclean. And if she is unclean, she has not touched any person. She has not spoken to any person. She has not dealt with socially with any person. She is practically isolated for 12 years. Can you imagine what she's going through? That's for being unclean. Because she, the protocol is you cannot touch anyone, speak to anyone, or else someone will be defiled. Let me explain to you another verse in verse 31, which is, is very interesting. Same chapter 15, but verse 31. This is what it says. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. What this verse is saying is that if this woman happens to touch someone or be with someone, even sit with someone, that someone will be defiled. And that someone cannot approach the tabernacle or else the presence of God will go away from the place. Uncleanness will defile the presence of God. Now what's interesting here is this woman has been with, in this condition for 12 years, isolated, depressed, and probably hopeless. I can't begin to imagine what she's going through. Let me explain why this is very interesting and, and this is very important. There's another verse. Uh, I hope you're not annoyed by so many verses. Chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. Um, this is very interesting because this will connect, this will clarify why she's defiled, why she's unclean, and why touching her will also make you unclean. Chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. This is what it says. If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and I will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it's the blood that makes atonement for life. What this passage is saying is that life is in the blood. Life symbolizes the blood. Do you remember when Cain murdered his brother Abel? God confronted Cain and he said, the blood of your brother cries from the ground for justice. It's not Abel is crying from the ground for justice because he's already dead. It is his blood crying out for justice. See, the blood is in the life. That's the symbolism of life. The blood, and therefore, nobody eats the blood. The blood is sacrificed on the altar for atonement. That's what's being taught here in Leviticus chapter 17. If this woman has been leaking blood, that means she's been leaking life for 12 years. That means she's slowly dying. See, this is the problem with this woman. 
and I hate to say this, but between the living and the dead, she's not totally alive. She's not totally dead. She's in between the living and the dead, slowly dying. And if someone is slowly dying, you cannot enter the temple and sacrifice to God. This is the same case with the lepers. The lepers are not alive. Their lepers are not dead. They are zombies, living dead, in between the living and the dead. And if that person touches someone, that someone will be defiled. The same case with the woman. The only problem is the woman is, is worse. See, outside, the woman seems fine. She looks fine. But inside, she's bleeding. I wonder if you're this woman. You're fine. You can put up a smile. You can dress well. But inside, you're bleeding. See, this is the problem with bleeding. The problem with bleeding is that you cannot see it. The problem with the bleeding is that you cannot see because it's inside. The problem of pain and isolation and depression and loneliness, something that you cannot see, but it's real nonetheless. You may be putting up a smile. You may be dressing up well. Maybe if I asked you how you are, and you would say, I'm fine. But really, you're hurting. You're isolated. You're depressed. You're lonely. You feel insignificant. See, this woman is experiencing the same thing. This woman has been bleeding for 12 years. She is slowly dying. She has become an outcast like the leper. I think there are people today who are experiencing the same thing. The world, for the last uh, two years, the world has gone cr much crazy. After the pandemic, people easily get gets angry. People are often, they, they're usually more crazy. Uh, there's, there are more traffic accidents now after the pandemic. A and, and what's the cause? It's because people feel isolated for a long time because of the pandemic. And this has caused so much isolation and depression. One of my favorite uh, comedian actor is uh, Robin Williams. And you know what happened to Robin Williams. We know he's very, very good comedian. He's up to his feet always. He's, you know, every time he's, uh, he performs, he really performs very well. But in 2014, he committed suicide. And people said he committed suicide because of depression. I cannot even begin to comprehend how this comedian who makes us laugh would commit suicide because he's depressed and isolated. See, this is a problem with bleeding. You cannot see it. Another great uh, favorite of mine is Sylvia Plath, if you're familiar with this. Sylvia Plath is a, is a poet. <coughs> She's a writer, a novelist. In 2008, she posthumously received a Pulitzer Prize Award. She's very good. You must uh, read her work. She's bright, she's smart, she's alive. In fact, she had two children. She, she was based in England. But in 1963, February 14, 4 a.m., she locked her door, the kitchen door, put tapes and clothes on the gaps while her two children were sleeping, turned on the gas oven, put her head inside the gas oven, it died of suffocation. Why? Depression. Isolation. See, I think this is very real. The woman 
have the same problem. See, the problem with the Gibeonites is that they were, they were put in a crisis. And the crisis led them to desperation. And desperation led them to break protocol. But in the end, because they were audacious, because they broke protocol, the line between the blessing and the curse was blurred. This woman is trying to do the same thing. She's in a crisis, 12 years of bleeding. Now she's going to break protocol. She's, she's so desperate. And Jesus comes. Jesus comes. And now she's going to try to catch up on Jesus. Now, the problem here is it there is a protocol for purity. You, she cannot touch. The only way she can get healed is to catch up with Jesus and deceivingly touch the garment of Jesus. That's what she will actually do. Why? Because she cannot break protocol. But going to the crowd, mixing with the crowd is already breaking protocol. And she will do this, touch Jesus. Let me read to you Mark chapter 5. Verses 27 to 29. This is what it says. When she heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. What she really intended to touch is the fringes on the garment. Let's show that. Let's show the fringes. This is the fringes. So this is the garment, and you see tassels. See, that's what you call fringes. That's what you tried to touch. In the book of Deuteronomy, the Israelites were commanded to attach tassels in every garment, in the four corners of every garment, because every time they wear these tassels, this reminds them of their covenant with God. Every time they touch the tassel, it's they're saying, I will be faithful to my covenant with God. This will make me holy because God is holy. Every time they touch it, it reminds them who they are. They are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, called by God. That's who they are. So when this woman tried to catch up on Jesus, she tried to touch the tassels of Jesus, not the whole garment, because people will know she tried to touch the tassel. And that, because she had, she had this theory, if she can contaminate other people by other people touching her, maybe if she touches the fringes of Jesus, she will get well. So this is easy. This is an easy contamination part, but reversed. So this woman was thinking, maybe if I can touch the garment of Jesus, that tassel, maybe I will get well. And by doing that, she broke the protocol of purity. But that led to her healing. And when I said that, led to her healing, the line between the blessing and the curse was blurred. She broke the protocol, which is wrong, but because of that, she got healed. And, and this is the portion where you can simply say, I, I cannot say if this is curse or blessing because she got healed, but she were also confronted by Jesus after that. In fact, you see, see that in verses 33 and 34. This is what it says in verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. The the woman was discovered. Jesus recognized that a power has left him when the woman touched him. And so this woman came and she was in fear and trembling because she knew she broke the protocol. 
And yet Jesus recognized her faith, not the breaking of the protocol. Jesus recognized her faith. Jesus honored her faith. That's what Jesus did. And by doing that, she has blurred the line between the blessing and the curse. See, what, what's interesting here is that this story of the woman is an interruption. L- let me end this with this thought. If you, if you read chapter 5, you would know that the real story is not about the woman. The real story is actually Jairus' daughter. So the real story here is that the story is really not about the woman. The story is about the daughter of Jairus. When Jesus was in the area, Jesus was approached by a man named Jairus. Jairus was a, a synagogue official. And he came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, I have a daughter who's 12 years old. is about to die. Please come to my house. She's dying, 12 years old. And along the way, this woman came to Jesus. So you see, the story is really not about this woman. The story is about Jairus' daughter. If you think about it, this woman is just simply an interruption. She was an interruption to begin with because she interrupted the business of Jairus because Jairus' daughter is about to die. They were in a hurry, but she stopped. And because she stopped, to other people, she's an interruption. To Jairus, maybe she's an interruption. Same thing with the Gibeonites. The people of Israel has already destroyed Jericho and Ai. They're about to destroy the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, you know, all the ites in the hill country. But these Gibeonites became an interruption. See, but that interruption was honored by God for one reason and one reason alone. Because of their faith. See, crisis leads to depression, desperation, desperation leads someone to break protocol and if we break the protocol in this case sometimes in this special case God honors it and it blurs the line between blessing and curse the only probably question is how desperate are you see when he sees your faith when he sees your desperation he sees your faith when God sees your desperation He sees not you breaking protocol. He sees your faith. And that's why He honors it. Question is, how desperate are we? When we think about it, the case of the woman is something that is within. She's bleeding from within. And I'm thinking, how many of us have been feeling insignificant, uh, probably feeling isolated, maybe depressed, maybe not as important as before until you are harboring that loneliness, that pain inside. Maybe you can identify with this woman. And maybe if you are desperate enough, maybe you can come and break the protocol, go to the crowd and touch the fringes of Jesus. And with faith, Jesus can heal. Let's all rise and let's let's focus on our prayer. I want you to imagine As your eyes are closed, I want you to imagine you're the woman. You've been bleeding for 12 years. And maybe this is not your case. Maybe you're not as as worse as this woman, but you still need Jesus. You still want 
to have the touch of Jesus. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you haven't been experiencing the, the joy of, of serving Jesus. Maybe this is us. And this woman simply audaciously went to the crowd, broke protocol, and Jesus stopped. She was not an interruption. Jesus stopped for her. And this is the word to you today. Jesus will stop for you if you will allow him. But you will have to cry out in desperation. How desperate are you? Sing with us. Say to Jesus, I'm desperate for you.